Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. So I'm Andrew, I'm at the Microbial Bioinformatics Hackathon here in Bath, and I'm joined together with a few guests, Torsten. Hi, I'm Torsten, I'm from the Doherty Institute in Melbourne, Australia. Hi, I'm Finley McGuire, I'm at Dalhousie University in Canada, and the Shared, Shared Hospital Lab in Toronto. And I'm Christy Horan, and I work at MDU at, in Victoria, Australia. Okay, so just before this, uh, we were talking about, you know, some interesting things you've come across, and you had one involving PDFs. Could you tell us? <laughs> when I first started as a baby bioinformatician at MDU, I started having to validate AMR versus phenotype. I came across a fantastic, very large data set that I was going to use, but needed to get the phenotypic metadata so that I could compare it to the genotypic results that we were seeing. And the only available information I could find was a PDF. So not like a database or anything, or access database? Or... No, no, not even a spreadsheet. It was a PDF with very useful information in it. And so I had to learn how to parse a PDF of 10,000 samples or so into a spreadsheet and then put that into some sort of useful format to compare to all of the genotypic results we've seen. I must admit, I did occur to me that maybe I might have taken up a job I might not actually want in the future after having done that early on in my career. Well, was it, at least it wasn't handwritten, you know, that'd be many times worse. Like. <laughs> no, I think that's the only way it could have been worse, is if it was actually handwritten. Yeah, absolutely. And what about you, Finn? Uh, I mean, I think they have now added a different approach now, but uh, I think until relatively recently, the, one of the only ways to get all the cutoffs for antibiotic susceptibility tests, for MICs to categorical cut. Yeah. from one of the one of the large providers was as a large set of PDF tables. They were all inconsistently formatted as well, slightly differently. So That's nice. It was almost impossible to automatically pop, to rip out. You, It was quicker just to take down the data. So do you think they were manually made like in Word or something like that? No, it was definitely extracted from an Excel sheet. It's just they were distributed as PDFs. That's nice. I do remember like submitting stuff to a journal, you know, like session numbers for thousands of samples, you know, and then you, you click, you know, build PDF and it's like a 300 page <laughs> submission. It's like, maybe you shouldn't do that, you know? <laughs> now, my main my main PDF story though is in that kind of disconnect as bioinformaticians, you know, we generate these data sets, generate these reports, and often there's some sort of spreadsheet report, but there's usually a PDF report with nice figures in it. Mm. And I assumed that it was the spreadsheet was being used and automatically ingested into, you know, an electronic medical record or what have you, until a feature request came in of, 
the final summary table in the PDF, could I make the font size bigger? I was like, what? Sure, I can make the font size bigger, but, but why? Oh, when we print it out and type it into the system, the font size is a bit small so people can skip rows by accident when they're using the ruler to mark them. So we made the font size bigger and it reduced our error rate in data creation. Yeah, that reminds me actually one time I was asked to, we had this phylogenetic tree which had 2000 strains in it and I was asked, oh, could you print that out? And we're like, this is too big to print out. But anyway, we were forced to by, you know, uh, an academic and then it turned into, you know, this thing that was, you know, a meter wide by like a few meters long. And uh, we, we took a photo of it actually because it's so impressive. And that was just to get it slightly big enough so you get like a size 8 font, you know, to be able to read these strains. Yeah, we were not asked to do that again. But you had something similar as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, first, uh, there's a, a picture from like first week of my PhD with some phylogenies long. And so I was looking at the, the evolution of folate by gene fusions and the eukaryotes and mm. eukaryote tree of life polarization stuff. And yeah, they, they were such large phylogenies that they were basically stuck into the ceiling and they hung to the floor. And my PhD supervisor just would, would work his way down them and go, that shouldn't be there. That shouldn't be there and mark it up and then we had to go back check the alignment do we did a few rounds of that yeah anyway thank god we have better tools now you know and, and you can zoom in on trees and, and all that kind of jazz like Jesus. click click on ancestors yeah yeah interactive yeah run out of round but actually you know just looking at the overall structure of a tree it does help a lot because often you can see errors you know straight mm. off like usually things are crazy and you think yeah that, that, that's not right <laughs> yeah Torsten, what are you? Yeah, in a similar vein to what you've described here, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to about 10 years ago where we started working with a large external organisation and they had a computer scientist guy. He didn't really have any experience in biology, but he was getting involved in a bacterial project and he loved caimers. Everything to him was could be done with caimers. You know? He just yep. discovered them and thought they could do everything. They can. And so <laughs> we were working on salmonella, I think, and he decided to do a, a dot plot of all salmonella in Jed Bank versus all salmonella <laughs> using caimers as like an identity measure. Yeah, yeah. So a very diagonal dot plot, right? Not a lot of stuff outside. But we had a person-in-person meeting at the end of the week and he pulled out his briefcase and took out this piece of paper with lots of sticky tape on it and then he proceeded to unfold it all over the conference desk. It was A4 sheets about probably... 30 by 20, printed out, and he sticky taped them all together. And he laid out this dot plot in the middle of the desk and said, oh, here's all the genomes compared. And literally, it was just a diagonal with a few, you know, where there were some repeat elements, there might have been some little bits off the diagonal. And this was his grand presentation to us all. And we all just looked at him dumbfounded and didn't know what to say. I remember a PhD student, and he, was, he had 700 genomes in his data set. And he went into Artemis, into like this genome viewer, and looked at all 700 manually to look for a particular uh, particular region. And it's like, are you sure you want to do that? So he was a human blast. Eyeballed 700. Which, okay, you you eyeball a few, you know, to to make sure things are going right. But yeah, that that's where you use a program to automate stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So then during COVID, we found things that they were really annoying, well, not really annoying, but inconsistent was date formats. You get every single possible date format in the entire world came into our lab. 
because every system I put it something slightly different you know you know like the year is two numbers the year at the beginning the year at the end and no one ever knew what was consistent or not and you had to kind of go and manually reformat it in the spreadsheets and the US the US date system versus the rest of the world is one of our pet peeves yeah and if you're lucky the date in the column is actually the date it's meant to be let alone if the format. That's <laughs> Versus, only if you're lucky. Yes. Yeah, data yeah. collection, data sequencing, date of birth of the patient. Which one is it? <laughs> yes, the COVID uh, wasn't around, you know, in 1921. <laughs> yeah, no, that, there's a lot of those. And, you know, with the Kogukei project, I know that so much of it, like, they go back and they say, okay, this, you know, variant did not exist before this time period. And then, you know, you find all these samples and what you find actually is that some hospital systems recycle ID numbers and so after a period and because they've gone around the counter and then that means that actually you know the metadata gets associated with the wrong samples because you're consistent you know constantly updating the metadata for different systems and then suddenly it's all wrong and you only notice it when you find variants that you absolutely know didn't exist speaking of hospital IDs I Thinking back to COVID as well, I was, we had a hospital ID which referred to the patient as opposed to how many times they've been sampled and sequenced and I was sort of just doing some sanity checks on the data and because I, no, I noticed that was only like two different case IDs, two different hospital IDs in the data set. Well, they're all either blank or 3,200,000. 3, and then I realised what had happened was that the hospital IDs are 10 digit numbers that start with 32 because it was 2020, something to do with 3 is our state code or something. And Excel was converting them to scientific form and rounding them. So any number 32001269 became 3.2E08. The next patient was 3.2E08. 3.2E08. Everything was rounded and converted to scientific form. And yeah, this kept happening over and over again because. Excel, you cannot turn off. It seems you cannot turn off this automatic conversion, as far as I can tell. So, unless they manually went each time to the Excel spreadsheet and forced it to be a string type, they it would always get converted to exponential form. So, one way I found out you can prefix cells in Excel with a single quote, and that will treat it as a string literal and sort of avoid this. But when these things are coming from the, you know, other sources, you can't do that automatically. But then if you're going to process that with a script, you know, you don't want those, you know, single quotes in there to, to mess things up. Well, I think when you export from Excel, a single quote's not in there. It, it's, okay. it's used at the entry point to say that this is a literal, and then when you export it back, it stays as a literal. Yeah. But yeah, messy. I mean, we're all familiar with Excel and date formats, but this was one that I hadn't really encountered mm. before. So always put a letter at the start of your ID codes to avoid this problem, is my advice. Yeah, uh, we found that some hospital systems, the same systems are sold to multiple different hospitals. And so it wasn't globally unique, say, for the UK. And so you'd have the same the same namespaces effectively which is a, a real real pain because then you'd have the hospital identifiers which we weren't allowed to have because they're synonymized and then you had the patient like the NHS numbers which we weren't allowed to have so we were, folk, you know, we were using identifiers which were not globally unique which is a problem and so then you had to go and combine it with patient age and you know data collection and all these other things to try and you know make sure you had the right patient and on many occasions you have to re-upload data because it would get overwritten then by other systems which you know fix the metadata and uh, yeah it was, it was a bit of a pain huge pain 
but then paperwork was another problem as well. At one point, there was a change in how systems work, and you know, instead of being automated and APIs, it turned into okay, for small sample numbers up to about twenty, yeah, you'd have to send a piece of paper with each tube, and then you know that became a huge time consumer. You know, if you have twenty pieces of paper for twenty samples, you know that that's not scalable at all, particularly you know when people are overwhelmed. So then. Those got reversed. You know, there's all these little changes and have downstream consequences that people don't realize. Anyway, I'm going to stop before I get sued or something. It was the, the, I think it was, I mean, obviously, bioinformatics, like we were very busy during the pandemic, but I think there were definitely times where I certainly got utterly disconnected by quite how much labor a certain stage was in the lab process. Like at the heights of the pandemic in the shared hospital lab, I think we had something like eight to ten people full-time just putting caps back on sample bottles because they were coming off automatically in the machine but they were, but they had to be resealed for disposal or storage or whatever so like it was just there was so much labor labor in that step we're just like oh i just get the data at the end and then, you know the workflows do all the work yeah you get stuff and uh, you find that the quality of data is really poor and you say oh could you repeat that and they're like no like there's no physical sample left there's no you know we dispose of them because we physically don't have the freezer space you know to store the samples after you know a day i mean i was taken by surprise by the like i thought you know okay there's been a few qc failures in this run that we could do with even resequenced and like over a certain number it was generally less effort to rerun the entire plate than rerun a small subset and just like that scale of sequencing and like economy was just a bit bit alien from the more academic side where you know you're trying to make you're trying to scrape every uh, sequence you can out of your funding or whatever yeah yeah i know like the cutoffs for us are certainly very strict you know uh, in terms of number of contamination contaminated reads uh, or number of reads in the negative control and that was like vastly stricter than we've ever done in academia ever you know like it's the tiniest tiniest bit we just re- you know redo the whole uh, plate which is a lot of money you know like it's huge amount of time and effort but now we're finding that, uh, you know, random coronavirus reads will just pop up everywhere in every study. You know, we haven't done anything in since April. It's just a building. Everything is just contaminated. All the reagents coming in have a tiny bit of contamination. And you can tell because, say, if, if it's from internally, there are 400 base amplicons. And, you know, it, it's very clear that that, you know, plant does not have coronavirus, particularly not if it's a 400 base amplicon. Yeah, I think we'll be forever seeing COVID contamination in all our data sets. And I worry about all these, you know, very sensitive, culture-independent data sets. Like, With PTC in them. Yeah, we'll be declaring every patient is dying from COVID. Mm. And then, Probably should reassure that these are COVID outcomes that are not functional viruses. These are just sequences. <laughs> contamination floating around in the air. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd say most labs are fully contaminated with aerosolized COVID by now. Anyone who touched COVID, like, yeah, it's just jam-packed everywhere. And all the companies that made the positive control material is, you know, they're jam-packed COVID everywhere. Turns out DNA is really small. Really? (laughs) And common. Get stuck in the nitty-gritty corners of the lab. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's not much you can do, you know, once it's there, you know, it's it's hard to get rid of. It's Mm. the new salmonella. For us, salmonella was cropping up in everything because it was our most commonly sequenced thing. Like, not at high levels, small levels, but it's there. But then you get people doing these uh, low biomass samples and finding microbiomes everywhere. You know, it's like, oh, the brain microbiome and, the, you know, whatever. It's like, are you sure about that one? Just like uh, a lot of the a lot of the big marine microbe eukaryote things, very often we find different Malassezia species all over the world. And it's like, 
I mean, yes, there are. It's a diverse group that might be everywhere. However, your dandruff is also all over the world. <laughs> but there was a long-term discussion about the kind of everything, every, everything is everywhere hypothesis being more related to the fact that you no, know, the people sampling were going everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Or people licking their fingers, or well, we've had that particular COVID. You know, like the person collecting the sample, obviously, you know, often that was a problem. Uh, you know, because they're, you know, you get CTs and maybe on a thirty-seven, thirty-eight. And you wonder, is that real or is that just because they walk from one room to the next, you know, like mm. to, to start to sample people and maybe there's a tiny bit of COVID lying around from positive patient. All these marginal cases. Anyway, does anyone else have any other anecdotes? I was just, just keep thinking about dates and Excel. You know, merging those two things together is just fraught. Yeah. Like, I'm always getting asked about a particular output that our tools generate and the date apparently is always wrong but only on one person's computer and because it's not my computer I can't reproduce the error so if anybody has any insights into why dates and Excel could be wrong email me yeah, I believe dates are stored in the Excel file in a kind of machine-independent form, like number of seconds since 1900 or something like that. 1970, Unix Epoch. Unix is 1970, but I thought Windows used a different thing. But the, and the setting on your computer describes what date format to use. So if they've left their format as US, then they'll yes. always export as US. Yeah, are they, have, they, have they come from a country that uses a different date format to Australia? I, honestly, I, I don't know, and I've sat down and tried to figure it out with them, and apparently every time they open it, it's wrong. Try it? Yeah, I think, look at their English, like, English dictionary setting. settings, and whether it's, like, English Australia. Or, or English US. It could be a version thing as well, like, there's always quirky things yeah. going on. Yeah. But speaking of bad metadata, you just made me think of Gazade. <laughs> yeah, be careful there, Naeem. I'm obviously validating metadata is important and Gazade doesn't validate metadata and it's quite interesting. I was just fascinated by the columns in Gazade looking at them. I was curating them to clean them up for our own so we could compare our data to Gazade and the gender column, male and female, is... I realise that lots of cultures in the world obviously don't use the English words for male and female but they they do start with the letter M. Most of the words yeah. for male in Irish is the opposite way around. Manor is a woman and fair is men. Well, the Irish used English nomenclature it seems in Gisade mostly. But yeah, like I couldn't believe how many different languages were represented in the gender column and also the age column was sometimes written as, you know, 100 100 and, one years or it might be 13 months or all sorts of random things so yeah validate your metadata people the sequencers <laughs> were fascinating as well and I, I don't think i never realized quite how many rebadge sequencers were sold in different parts of the world really like we found i think it was in i think it was malaysia had clearly had the ion torrent had been rebadged and sold as it under a different name by a different company that was in the data set. Emma Griffiths, when she was doing the, the metadata specification work, did a lot of work kind of looking at some of the weirder things that come, turned up in those columns if you looked down at them and broke them down. And no, I believe Iron has been re resold and rebadged a lot in Southeast Asia, pushed mm. into public health labs as a, a rapid solution for amplicon sequencing. I just 
met someone recently who wanted some help from a, a country in Southeast Asia, and yeah, they're using iron torrent for COVID, and mm. like very unusual. And um, yeah, it was the iron. Sh- it was the sample prep. I think they really like became very popular because the iron chef yeah. like sample to sequencer kind of automation thing I think got, was one of the reasons why it was as popular as it is but, but I think some you know private companies have are selling a, like a turnkey solution mm-hmm. and rebadging as something else so these people that are using that solution just call it what the solution is called not necessarily mm-hmm. what the specific instrument is called that's mad I, mean, I did once have to at a particularly an organisation renowned for being very high tech and the latest technologies did have to spend a lot of work persuading them not to do microarray and ion tar in the mid mid 2010s so our our microarray is in storage you know we, we were building four years ago the microarray into storage and but yeah people periodically say oh well we spent so much money on that maybe we should pull it out it's like or not but going back to jizzed i mean the metadata is a bit crazy you know often you have travelers and they're not counted as travelers in the database so you just see the country and then you don't know you know, you know it's very it, they should annotate that this person is not from that country but they've traveled from somewhere else to be fair so the people submitting the sequence may not be able to access that metadata from the public health unit anyway so yeah whether it's worse to have it there or with missing metadata or not have it at all I don't know absolutely but at least people were making their data public I went and reviewed loads of papers for COVID and I found that I couldn't reproduce most of them you know a big chunk of them because there was no no accession numbers or links to the data the data say raw reads weren't released maybe they just released the consensus uh, sequences or there wasn't metadata or there wasn't uh, the pipelines used to process the data everything's missing you know in one form or another so there's actually only a tiny number maybe 30% of papers were actually looked reproducible now I didn't know were they reproducible but like there's a big big problem there well and then the other challenge that I ran into was versioning and I don't know whether it's been solved subsequently but versioning of sequences in GISAID so if someone updated a sequence, the accession didn't change. Really? So yeah, you could have the same you have different sequences under the same accession. So it was almost silently updated. I don't know if they added a version more subsequently, but that was certainly an issue last time I dug into it. Yeah, it's part of processing Gazade, so we could I filtered it down. I encountered this duplication problem as well. Well the original record would just stay in the database as well, so it was there twice. Yeah, I mean, maybe GizAid isn't the best thing for this type of data. You know, maybe you should focus on NCBI and EBI. But it, I mean, but it, I mean, it's one of the th- one of the things that beyond you know arguments about data sovereignty, which are important and always worth discussing, which GizAid obviously kind of spends a lot of time leading to the discussion thereof. But uh, one of the driving factors I, I think behind the use of GizAid was. You know, it's a very simple structure. You upload your spreadsheet, you upload your sequences, it's there. The problem is that structure doesn't represent the complexity of the actual data, which is what the more complex structure of your bio project, your biosample, your SRA, your the records are all linked together in the multiple different databases. It's way, like even with the best wizards, it's always gonna be a more complex process to integrate your data into because it's a better representation of the data and the data is that complex. And that's why you need to hire bioinformaticians, computer scientists, and people to manage your big, important data sets. Keep us employed forever. 
<laughs> Michael Bentley right. podcast, maintaining job security for buying petitions. Yes, we need to have <laughs> complex systems so that we can have jobs. <laughs> and no GUIs, no. Uh, well, that, was, that was Twitter the other week. Oh, it? yeah, no GUIs. I mean, I mean GUIs, I, I agree in some cases, GUIs, you know, can help. Like, say, if you're, say you're a wet lab scientist and you just want to do a bit of analysis, and I think Galaxy is very good, and mm. a lot of people in Quadramine are now using, like, Galaxy for analysis, and you have people who don't know the command line are able to go into assemblies, they can find AMRDs and find plasmids, and that's fantastic. They can go and self-service. They don't need to use my team at all. But then, obviously, you know, there comes a point where you do need to do stuff in, you know, on the command line, which is most of what I do, to be honest. Uh, I was amazed at the, like the usage statistics for some of the online port tool portals, like Card RGI via that portal, like yeah. like they've actually got some data that they're going to be releasing on like the live usage, and it's wild how heavy it's used. I mean, I know myself, like if I need to do a little blast, like I'll, sure. like I'll just use NCBI blast yeah. and against NR. It's just quick and simple and I don't need to worry too much about it. is the database up to date, you know, do I have to do blah, blah, blah. It's just straightforward. Easy. But there's definitely, and I think, again, even during the pandemic, things like Usher and stuff like that, definitely public, some public health groups out there were using the web portal is the workflow. Manually taking the data, putting it in the web portal, copying down the data, like that is the workflow that this has been done using. I have found like some of the, some of the workflows, sorry, some of the web pages were quite good, like Nextslate. I yeah. found it's fantastic and I throw it in simply because you can take a screenshot of it and say to people, listen, this is why I think your data is contaminated or this, you know, you can mm-hmm. clearly see big blocks are missing here and you can't list this data. And, you know, it's a good way of visualizing and showing other people where there's issues. And you don't have to write it. And I don't have to write it either, yeah. Or if you just send someone a list of SNPs, you know, it, it's meaningless to them. Or just if you condense it down into lineages, it's not much use either because you don't get across subtleties of, you know, within the data. You know, if important applicants are missing, then that changes things a lot. Yeah, I think I've realized that us as bioinformaticians who have access to high performance computing and command line environments and we're the minority. The, most of the world is get generating fast queue data in their labs, and these online web services and portals are like extremely highly used, as Finley just said, with RGI. And obviously, the Danish Center for Genomic Epidemiology, all their tools are massively used with you know, millions of jobs run every year. And yeah, I think we they have their place and without them yeah, a lot of people wouldn't be able to do anything so yeah well, it's interesting the drive towards like a lot of these tools like Nextclade actually executing on the local machine and all the pro- computes actually being done locally rather than via on the rather than, you know the browsers I did not know that the browser yeah the browser is acting as an execution engine oh brilliant yeah a lot. that's the next big thing I think is mm. client side computation and you know, these, everyone's got a multi-core laptop now and the new web technologies such as WebASM and web workers and stuff allow highly parallel, fully running on bare metal essentially. The WASM is converted into local opcodes just in time compilation conversion really. It's not even compilation. It's really a one-to-one conversion between WASM and the local the, uh, native instruction set these days. So yeah, there's going to be, you could, I think somebody already demonstrated bacterial genome assembler running in a web browser. Seriously. Will Rowe did a that, I think really. Oh, he's gone into private industry. Yeah, he has done. I was over at his house today. Oh, but really? client-side computation is going to be a big thing, I think, in the next decade in bioinformatics. 
Yeah. And Rust and all these up-and-coming languages can cross-compile to WASM. So it's going to be even easier and easier to get kind of native code running on a web client. It's amazing. Though some of the challenges is the bugs can be very hard to debug. If there's an issue with someone's much like even like the very personalized system, it's very hard to track down what's going wrong sometimes with WASM. But, you know, Bioformatics, it can take me days or weeks to track down stuff as well, yeah. you know? Particularly if stuff isn't tested or, you know, written very well or commented or it's an obscure little, you know, yeah. Right, so we covered dates. What else? What other kind of interesting quirky stories you have? That we're allowed to talk about. That we're allowed to talk about. You know, you might have to, you know, not name names. Well, I can give you an old story. I don't know if I've mentioned this before on, a, on the podcast series here, but many, many years ago, I went to a sort of a meeting and it was at the start of genomics when Roche 454 sequencing was all the, all the rage. And I went to this meeting and one of the people was talking about you know, their 454 run for their bacterial genome that they were working on and how they spent six months curating their data. And I didn't quite understand what they were doing, what they meant. And it turns out that they put all their 454 reads into a spreadsheet with the quality values in column two and the sequence in column one, and then manually looked at all the quality scores, and then in column three put a trimmed version of that read. And they would work on this every Friday for six months until they managed to trim all the reads. Then they exported those reads and used them for the other analyses. And, yep, and they still had homopolymer errors. <laughs> So I, I, I was dumbfounded. I just could not believe that this was a highly a high level person as well. I was quite proud of their work, and and as we all know here, sitting around this microphone, is that that could have been done by a simple tool in five minutes. And this person spent six months, one day a week, of their life manually trimming reeds. But they looked busy. They did look busy. Yes. And when the boss was coming, they didn't have to switch to a fake spreadsheet because they had a spreadsheet in front of them. And unfortunately, they couldn't get away with that. You know, often people, if you look busy enough, you can get away with it for a long time, you know? It's important work, particularly if your manager doesn't know how big or small the task is. I'm just, I, I admire them for their persistence. Like, it must have been boring, especially after the second month. <laughs> or therapeutic, depending on your perspective, I suppose. Or maybe he went into a zen, or she went into a zen mode. Or maybe they did it in five minutes, and then they wanted an excuse, you know, to not do any work for a few months. But it was their own project. <laughs> so it's just the, the slow bioinformatics movement. Slow bioinformatics, I like it. <laughs> Have you ever encountered problems where, you know, a bioinformatician misinterprets something because they're not, they don't understand biology or that, like, that DNA has more than one strand? Well, funny you should say that. I was just thinking of that, a tool a while ago I encountered, it was a tool for doing in silico PCR, and, you know, you give it a left prime and a right prime and it would search your giant genome for, for that amplicon. And I was running it and it was giving me results, but I couldn't figure out what was going wrong. It was like, it wouldn't return all the results. And then it finally hit me that, oh, maybe they're not checking the second strand. So I went back and looked at the results and yeah, that all, all the coordinates they sent back were always, you know, the first coordinate was smaller than the second one. So it was only positive strands. So I emailed them and said, oh, I think you're forgetting to check the second strand. And, and they said, oh, oh yeah. And yeah, they eventually fixed it, but it just, 
makes me wonder how many sort of, of these strand bugs and how many out by one errors we all had the old when, oh, did we yeah. start counting at one or do we start counting at zero and these sorts of bed files versus GFF coordinates and so forth. Yeah. I wonder how many bugs are still out there related to these problems. And you were telling me earlier that uh, you know the start of a gene can change. Yeah, I have to admit, as the author of Proker, how embarrassing it is to when I first started in genomics. You know, I asked about a gene, and they told me about this start code on business and this end code on business. And so I wrote this whole database, web database system for annotating genomes manually and curating them. And then they then they let me know that start positions can change and my whole model was based on like unique keys involving just the stop code on and things like that so basically I had to live with this broken system for the next 10 years because it was too hard to change <laughs> yeah yeah and I think the one for me was I I just thought all bacteria were, had circular chromosomes and there is one chromosome in a bacteria I never realized that there is always exceptions to the rule and so some bacteria are not circular did you know that? And some bacteria can have more than one chromosome. Well, funny you should say that. The first bacteria I ever worked on had two chromosomes. <laughs> Vibrio? No, it was Leptospira. And yeah, it had one 3 megabase one and a 300 KB. And it was a genuine chromosome, it wasn't a plasmid. Anyone else have any weird misconceptions about bacteria? That... I was, I was, by doing the weird microbial eukaryote route first, I was well prepared for the weirder. Like, so the, the organism I did my PhD on, Paramecium brasserian alveola, has two nuclei. It has a somatic nuclei and a germline nuclei. Somatic nuclei is about 800 ploidy and is basically expression profiled, so it has all these intronic elements spliced out. And there's a bit of shuffling of exons and stuff like that. You know, yeah. Oxytrica does that as well. And then it has this germline nucleus that's diploid and used in sexual reproduction but is riddled with these intronic elements, like these invasive intronic elements. So whether the second nucleus evolved because it became such a mess in the germline, it's one question, but it doesn't bother with mitosis. Like by doing, it doesn't bother chromosome segregation in mitosis for this macronucleus. It just randomly pinches somewhere near the middle. And the ploidy is so high, it just about balances out the dosage. So like, and this is this is a this is a serial this has endosymbionts, it's a serial phagotroph, it's there's big power there's big DNA viruses in the system, like it's a zoo, this organism, a single cell organism. So nothing bacteria has managed to throw at me yet has stood up to the wildness of some of the microbial eukaryotes. And I've heard that some eukaryotes like they'll have different ploidy at different points in the life cycle. And that just blew my mind, you know, Jesus Christ, like we, we assume everything's like human or things like bacteria, but then you get all the weird wonderful stuff that's out there in life and it's just totally crazy. Like every rule is broken. Wait till I tell you about plants, Andrew. <laughs> is it wheat that doubles its genome every now and then and just then it just has twice as many chromosomes for a while and then half it jettisons half its genome at random and continues on and just goes back and forth, I believe, yeah. I'm glad I don't work on plants. But talking of bacteria related, it reminds me of um, Neisseria gonorrhea, which I, is interesting in that I believe that each cell has between four and five copies of the genome in it. It doesn't have a single copy of its genome. And I think the understanding is that this genome is pretty clonal, but there is sometimes some variation and that copies of the genome within the cell can recombine with each other within the cell, intracellularly. 
So it's fascinating because an, an offshoot of this is that, so there's five copies of the genome and then each of these genomes has five copies of the 23S ribosomal gene. And there's a well-known mutation in Gono that confers resistance to some particular antibiotic. It's a SNP in the 23S gene. So think about it. We've got five copies of the genome. Each has five copies of the 23S. So we have 25 copies of the 23S gene in this cell. And one or more of those 25 copies can have this SNP. If you have one copy of the SNP only, you're a little bit resistant. If you have yeah. 25 copies, it's, it's strongly resistant. There's this linear dose response with the number crazy. of SNPs. So I don't think there's a tool yet that kind of does a good job of measuring this particular SNP. So I noted that's a thing that we've noticed is that, you know, we've had AMR tools that predict genes, and now we're looking at AMR tools that predict SNPs, but we need the tool to actually try and estimate the, the copy number of that SNP as a proportion of the total cell. And we can't do that with, with an assembly. You have to go back to the reads. And you need a specialist tool just for that species as well. Almost. Well, it's a generic, it's a generic problem, right? Finding, finding a major allele fraction in a data set because you don't really need to know you don't need to untangle all these assemblies to do this you just have to look at the read depth on the 23s gene and kind of mm. come up with a proportion and i don't know if there is a specific tool that maybe ariva can do it i'm not sure christy could ariva tell you that this sort of information ariva could give you the fraction of reads covering the 23s but i don't think it would give you that in proportion to the mm. rest of the genome it would just be in comparison to... Well, that's it. As long as that's a proportion within the data set, that's enough to know its potential. But doesn't a reverse force one allele? Yeah, it yeah. does, yeah. But then so if there's only one step, that's numbers. okay. Yeah. But it aligns the read back, I yeah. think, in its very extensive output format, <laughs> there is probably a column which tells you exactly what you need, if you can find it. Yeah, no, Ariba is very, very well written in that regards. No, it's, that's a very common, it's a very common problem with, like, 18S amplicon sequencing for microbial eukaryotes because they often have multiple copies which have divergence from one another. So how do you tell whether it's two different related species or one genome where you have your amplicon sequence variants? It's the same bacteria, you know, if you look at 16S, often the intra very intracell very intra often the intrachromosome variation is greater than the variation between the species. Mm. Like, it's just crazy. Really? Yeah. For some of them, like, we had some strep ones. What you do is you just kind of take long read assemblies and then you take the 16S and map them, you draw a file in a tree, then you see what species are. And you can just visually see, and it's like, oh, yeah, okay, that's totally wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Because you can't use 16S for calling species. Does anybody in the wet lab know that? Uh, Genus is a stretch. And uh, usually... <laughs> The wishy-washy. But yeah, no, it, it's it's a problem. Don't use 16S. There you go. So thank you very much for joining me today, Christy, Finley, and Torsten. Thanks for having Thanks us, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.